The text for the sermon this day is taken from John chapter 1, verse 14, specifically what says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the text. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There is hardly a more profound set of words that you will find in anywhere of all writings, of all literature or whatever, you'll never find more profound of a phrase. The Word became flesh. Martin Luther, he had argued that the greatest miracle in the history of the world was not the feeding of the 5,000. It was not turning the water into wine at the miracle at Cana, at the wedding at Cana, which, by the way, scientifically is incredible, because if you ever actually tried to turn water into wine, which is possible, it would, ha it would make a, you'd have to require a very large nuclear explosion, which laid probably the state of Iowa in a crater. So it isn't from the scientific, it's pretty incredible that he did that. But it's, that was not the greatest. And believe it or not, for Luther, not even the resurrection of Jesus was the greatest miracle. The, mo the greatest miracle was that the Word became flesh. Not just even the virgin birth, not even that. It's that the Word became flesh. The Greek wor the word that we use is incarnation. Literally, he was in meted, in fleshed, to the Latin term. And the Greek, the word that we translate as word, the Greek word is lagos, which the English language has no sufficient word to translate that. Because what John is evoking is idea. He's using philosophical terminology. So if you go back to, so if you could think back to your high school days or college days, or you are right now in your high school or college days, you remember the three great Greek philosophers. There was so Socrates, or if you like Bill and Ted, it's so Socrates. Then there is Plato, and then Aristotle. And Aristotle had one of the great, one of the great arguments for the existence of a higher power. And it was known as the argument for the unmoved mover. So, for example, why did I put that iPad down? Because in my brain, I decided I needed to put it down. And so my brain sends signals through my arm to my hands to lower it and move through the, the, at, the, molec the molecules to set it down there and the molecular structural, or structure of the wood is intact and it's able to stand. And by the way, then you could start tracing it back and you could go through, I was planning this for the sermon, why am I planning it for a sermon? Because it's Christmas, why is it Christmas? I could go through all these sequence of events and eventually you could go all the way back to Adam and Eve and you'll go back to God, then you'll go back to God himself now, as everything that ever happens has a cause, and there's one person that has no cause, 
And he is the unmoved mover. He is the Logos. He is God. So John is invoking that ideology. And the reason we know that is because in the very beginning of John, John chapter 1, he wrote, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he is invoking the Logos, the, the unmoved mover, the source of all existence is this Logos, the Word. And now he's saying that this Logos became flesh. The one who spoke everything into existence. Think about just on this past Monday. How many of you happened to try to catch the quote Bethlehem star? Just so you know, it was not actually the Bethlehem star. It's just kind of a cool phenomenon. But, because when we'd say that that's the Bethlehem star, it makes the Magi look like idiots. Because they weren't following two planets. They were actually following a star that wasn't moving, which, by the way, is not normal, which means they were following something miraculous. Much like when Jesus was crucified and the, the sky became black, that was not an eclipse. So, solar eclipses are scientifically impossible during Passover. And they also only last, the longest eclipse in the history of the world is eight minutes. The darkness at the crucifixion was, six hour, was three hours. So not, it was not an eclipse. So signs in the heavens, that, ha, that's, that goes with Jesus' birth and his death. But the thing is, so you think about, but either way, it's going back to the Bethlehem star or those two planets. Think about how huge Jupiter is and Saturn is. The earth is minuscule, very, very tiny compared to it. And think about how much there is, there is in between here and there. Think about how many people across this planet we're watching that, watching for the, watching the two planets as they aligned. Think about all of the things in between, every little atom, every little molecule, all of that. The word spoke into existence. From the tiniest of atoms to the largest of stars and everything in between he spoke it all into existence. And yet, he became flesh. And he wasn't born into the house of Caesar Augustus. He wasn't born into Herod's family, which is good because Herod probably would have killed him. But he was born into the family of Mary 13 to 15 years old. Joseph was probably 18 or 19 years old. And both of them lived in poverty. And the reason we know they were poor, contrary to some newish articles like to claim, 
is because this coming Sunday you'll hear the reading that what they donate, what they brought as, a, as an offering when Jesus is brought to the temple is only to be brought if you are poor. It, what they brought was a sign of their poverty. And so he was born into that couple. And he became human flesh in the fullness of time, as it said in Galatians. Fullness of time, that means God had orchestrated it all the way from, the, from Adam and Eve, actually even before that, before the foundations of the world, but Adam and Eve were the first one to whom it was promised. And it was promised again to Abraham, it was promised to Isaac, it was promised to Moses, it was promised to David, it was promised all throughout the scriptures. In, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, I mean, born of a woman. And by the way, if you remember back to confirmation, if you remember these days, when you got to the second article of the creed, there's two states. There's the state of humiliation, and there's the state of exaltation. The state of humiliation began when Jesus became, when the word became flesh. Now it's not just because he became human. There is actually nothing wrong with being human. In fact, that's the idea that there's something wrong with human flesh is actually known as Gnosticism. The whole idea that you, when you die, you get to become an angel, that's Gnosticism. As if something is wrong with our body that we need to become something else. When God created man, what did he say on day six? Behold, it was what? Good. The, the state of humiliation wasn't that he became human. It was because he became human under the law. In other words, that means all of the effects of the sin-fallen world, he lived in it. Now, as he gave up the throne, if you read in Isaiah 6, you can see where he was before. He was on a throne, being worshipped and adorned by these magnificent seraphim who'd sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Which, by the way, that's why we sing some variation of that. Every communion service, it's kind of getting you in practice because you're going to sing it for when you're in heaven. So better get it under, get it down. So, but anyways, those seraphim are standing there and worshiping him. So he's on this magnificent throne with the train of his robe filling the temple and he gave that up for a manger. And even before that, the womb of his mother. For nine months, the womb of Mary was the throne of God. He set that aside for that. He became, and that meant, and, he, and that poverty, he set that aside for a life where, I mean, almost immediately, he was being hunted down to be killed. There's a reason that in the history of the church, whenever you get to the creed, and you get to the part where it says, and he became man, do you know what the traditional posture is? To bow at the waist. In the Apostles and Nicene Creed. And, the reason, and there's even a great story by Luther where he kind of wrote a story, kind of a, 
um, fictional story where a man refused to, kneel, to bow at this, the mentioning that God became man, that he became man, and the devil came down, came down and bopped him on the head to get him to, kneel, to bow. And the reason is that if God were, become, were to become an angel, I, you are certain you would have to bow. Because do you realize how incredible that is? He chose not to become an angel, not to become a beautiful animal. He chose to become something like you. He became human. Is that not just incredible? The one who spoke everything into existence became one of you. It's for this reason that we come to worship. Many of us don't even think about this, that really none of us deserve to worship him. Because of our sinfulness, our brokenness. This world that God created, perfect, he created it very good. He created our bodies very good. And what have we done to this world? We just make it worse and worse with each passing day. We most certainly don't deserve to come into the presence of God. What did Isaiah do when he, in Isaiah 6, when he saw the same one who was in the manger, when he saw him on that throne, he got down on his knees and said, Woe am I, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. It should be our same nature. Woe is me. How can I come into the presence of this holy and righteous God? The commandments, I've broken every single one of them. And not just once, over and over and over. How can I stand before a holy and righteous God? Which is where I actually think there is some wisdom to what Catholics do when they do the genuflecting right before they go into the pew. I don't, think, I don't know how much they think about it, but bowing, genuflecting, it's an act of humility. Do you know what the Magi did when they came before Jesus? It says that they prostrated. And what that means is they literally would lay out their entire body flat on the ground like this. Laying their entire self before that infant child. Because he, they knew they don't deserve to be in his presence. Even with the gold and incense and myrrh that they brought, they don't deserve to be in his presence. We don't with our sin. And see, that is why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is so profound that he became something so small. And the whole reason he was born was for one singular purpose, and that was to be crucified, to die for you. He did it all for you. He became human flesh. He gave up the thrones of heaven just for you, for your sake. And the wonderful thing is, 
is that when you, when the time, the time came for you, in the waters of baptism, you were clothed. The very same one who was on the throne in Isaiah, the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who was in the manger, you were clothed with him in baptism. Paul says that all of us who've been baptized have been clothed in Christ. We have put on Christ. But there's an even, there's an old, one of the early Christmas hymns. We're actually, right after, um, for the hymn that we're going to sing in a little bit, is pretty much the oldest Christmas hymn, Of the Father's Love Begotten, which is kind of a creedal hymn, which is why we're singing it when we do. But there's another hymn that's old, also very about the same time period that is considered a Christmas hymn, and I couldn't find a spot for it tonight, today. But the hymn is Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. You all, are you familiar with that hymn? Let all mortal flesh keep silence. And so the, whole, the first verse is echoing that silence. You Every time you come to the service, to the divine service, you are privileged to come before the Most High God because you have been chosen as His child. You are holy, you are beloved on account of Christ who has claimed you in the waters of baptism. And therefore you can come before Him to lift up His name in worship. But... Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Which you've been cleansed in baptism. But he, gives you, he still gives you more. There's still more than that. If you look right now, right here is a, is a, is a manger. And right on top of it is one of our communion set. Is the communion. Because what I love in that hymn is that says he gives his own self for heavenly food. Which means the very same one who is in the manger, the one who is on the throne in Isaiah, the one who was on the cross is in the bread, in the wine given for you. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the Word become flesh is in the bread, in the wine, his very body, his very blood, for the forgiveness of your sins. Profound, incredible, that he gives himself for you to strengthen you, to forgive you, to carry you through this world. And it is a foretaste of what he has in store. It is a taste of heaven itself. Because the day will come that on account of God, the word becoming flesh, you will enter into his everlasting glory, his everlasting kingdom, which has no end. Till that day comes, to him be all glory. Amen.
The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keep you in the one true faith, the life everlasting. Amen.